Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number 51. My name is Dominic. I am one of the co-hosts of the show. The other co-host is Janice, and you'll hear from him in a few minutes. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. John Apsopaeus, who has practiced magic, divination, and neopaganism since the 1960s. He has more than 30 publications in various magical and neopagan magazines and has designed the Pythagorean Tarot and wrote the comprehensive guide to that tarot. He is the author of The Oracles of Apollo, which was released in 2017, and is the author of the new book, The Secret Texts of Hellenic Polytheism. Dr. Apsopaeus frequently presents workshops on Hellenic magic and neopaganism, Pythagorean theurgy, divination, and related topics. You can find more about him and his work at opsopaeus.com. That's O-P-S-O-P-A-U-S.com. And from there, you can also find his old website, Biblioteca Arcana. And there, there are just dozens and dozens of really interesting and relevant articles uh, to what we talk about on this show and what we will be talking about in this episode. Speaking of this episode... The main focus of the book and the episode is the Neoplatonic thinker Platon. And like we mentioned in the episode, he is sort of a bridge between the old school Neoplatonists and the uh, Renaissance Neoplatonists. So, a very interesting topic. As always, thank you so much to our Patreon supporters. We appreciate you and are honored to have you partnering with us on this this project if you would like to also help support what we're doing support this work head over to patreon look us up and pledge whatever makes sense we dedicate this to hermes and asclepius and may any merits that we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they together with us may equally realize awakening Excited to have John Opsopaeus on the show today to, to discuss his new book and all things uh, Hellenic uh, polytheism. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to be on the show. Glad to have you here. 
So let's start where we are always start at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this sort of world of Hellenic polytheism, and specifically how you got interested in this subject matter um, of Plethon? Yeah, so I, um, you know, like many uh, kids, I was interested in the Greek myths. In fact, um, I'm pretty sure the first book I ever bought with my own money was a little thin book of uh, Greek myths, you know, from the bookmobile that that came around to school. And um, so I was always very interested in mythology and um, Greek uh, culture in general. I started teaching myself uh, Homeric Greek when I was uh, in college. So I had, you know, kind of an, an interest in in, in um, Hellenic culture. You know, I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, in many ways, I feel more comfortable with these people, the ancient Greeks, than I do with with many of my contemporaries. And and um, I always kind of felt felt at home in um, Greek Hellenic culture. And um, so, sometime later, and in the early to mid '80s. Um, I really sort of embraced the fact that I was a, a pagan, um, and so I naturally um, uh, gravitated towards uh, Hellenic paganism. And um, that's really, you know, when I started uh, working on this stuff more, more seriously. And at that time, and really still, I think, um, Hellenic pagans are a relative minority amongst uh, pagans uh, in general. And so I started, you know, trying to find some resources, you know, get some ideas about how to practice um, as a um, modern day uh, Hellenic pagan and um, meet up with other people that that um, were drawn to the uh, Greek and also to the Roman gods. And um, I started a um, networking service uh, through postal mail originally and eventually moving on to the Internet to try and, you know, um, coordinate events, share ideas about rituals. Uh, of course, you know, the, the advantage of Hellenic paganism over many of the other traditions is that it's so well documented. Um, the ancient Greeks were illiterate people, and uh, because of their importance in, in Western culture, they've been studied to death. And so there's just a lot of material available, and we don't have to guess so much and make up so much as we uh, might, um, you know, with... Um, Celtic paganism or, or Norse paganism or, or other other um, traditions. But, you know, so I, I, I started doing research to try and, and, you know, learn more about ancient religious and also magical practices, you know, to then uh, adapt them to the, to the modern world. Because I believe that all religions are organic, they grow and uh, have to uh, adapt with the times. And certainly, ancient Greek paganism was very diverse and, and ever evolving. So, um, so that's sort of a general background um, uh, as to um, how I got into Hellenic polytheism. And um, in 1986, a uh, book came out that was very interesting and very exciting. And uh, that was Woodhouse's book, uh, George Gemistos Plethon, uh, the last of the Hellenes. And um, this was um, about George Chemistos, who called himself Plethon, who was a, a neo-pagan living in the uh, late 14th and early 15th century in Constantinople, and then later 
uh, in Mistras in um, Greece. So he, uh, what 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 this uh, person did, a philosopher, Platonic philosopher, was essentially uh, produce a, I would say, the first neo-pagan religion in the sense that he was taking the ancient practices and the ancient philosophy and essentially designing a religious system suited to his times. So late Middle Ages, early early Renaissance. And um, so in that sense, it's a neo-pagan religion. It's a reconstruction. And it's not a continuous tradition that's been handed down from ancient times, although it's built on the ancient traditions. Uh, the problem was that while uh, Woodhouse's book was very good in many respects in terms of talking about the life and times of Plethon and, and um, um, giving some translations, um, he didn't translate a lot of the major work that is important for practicing pagans. So uh, I should maybe back up a little and say that, that when uh, Plethon, as I'll call him, was alive, he uh, had written this book, uh, Book of Laws, that basically lays down how to practice his um, uh, polytheistic religion. And um, this was a secret, uh, although uh, people suspected him of, be, of being a practicing pagan, but he kept it secret because you could be executed and tortured uh, for practicing paganism. Uh, so he kept it secret during his lifetime and apparently had some students. Uh, well, we know he had some students and, and some of them apparently also practiced this religion. Um, and, um, but the book wasn't discovered until after he died. And um, much of it was burned, about three-fifths of it were burned, but um, the rest survives, and, and, that, and the rest of the, the uh, surviving parts are translated in my book. But this was the problem with Woodhouse's book that came out in uh, 86, was that he summarized some of the stuff. He really didn't present enough of the actual ritual material to practice. Um, and so um, while it was very enticing, uh, it really was not uh, useful. And so I thought, well, that's kind of sad. Um, so I went and I, I got the uh, Greek text um, that was published in, oh, I think it was 1858. I'm, I'm, I've forgotten the date now. Um, but in the 19th century with a French translation. And, um, you know, I, I um, uh, got that book and, and, and spent some time with it. But it was... My French is not 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 particularly good, and and my Greek at that time was was not uh, sufficiently uh, good either. And I said, well, it's just too bad, but I'll just have to wait for somebody to translate this into English. Well, unfortunately, nobody ever did. <laughs> and um, so, um, since then, in the past uh, oh decade, people have got interested in Plethon again, and um, uh, there have been several good books written about his philosophy, uh, again, without a complete translation of his book of laws, though. And so um, I finally decided, well, you know, I really need to do this. And so I um, read these books, of course, uh, which, which helped to explain his whole philosophical and religious system. And I also um, uh, translated, um, mostly over the past two years, the uh, Greek text uh, into into English, uh, just so I would have a, a working translation. Um, 
you know, so I could tell exactly what his rituals were. So then I wrote the book and the book explains then for a modern practitioner, his philosophy and also sets out his calendar. He has a whole ritual calendar for the whole year. Uh, and um, uh, it sets out his uh, various rituals and invocations. And he has a, a set of um, 27 hymns. Um, and so it translates all of the hymns that are also used as part of the rituals. And so I did, I wrote that all out. And ultimately, we also decided to include my working translation of his book of laws as an appendix, a, a rather lengthy appendix. I think it's about 100 pages um, in, in my uh, published book well, with some translations of some of his other material as well. So it was mostly to be able to get you know, a clear enough translation of the surviving parts of his work to um, be able to practice it myself um, and then also to, to present that for other people too as well that are interested in his, in his philosophy and his religion and uh, might be interested in practicing it or adapting you know, some of his practices to, uh, to um, their own um, religious practice. That's great. Yeah. No, thank you for, this, for doing this work. I mean, having primary sources are are kind of invaluable, I think, um, rather than just getting an author's, you know, synopsis or whatnot, having it actually translated is, is really valuable. So the book of laws, I, I believe we have 16 chapters that, that survived. How many chapters were there in total? Do we know? Oh, that, yes, we do know because one of the things that survives is a complete table of contents. Oh, wow. And, um, off the top of my head, I, I don't remember the number of chapters, but I think it's over a hundred actually. And so that sounds pretty bad. 16 chapters <laughs> out of well, I should say a hundred. Um, but fortunately, um uh the ones that some of the ones that survive are quite lengthy. Uh, okay. I mean the chapters vary widely in length. Some of them, well, one of them is just a one paragraph long, but others go on for, for page after page after page. So for example, all of the 27 hymns, that's one chapter. Great. Um, and um, all of the invocations is, is another chapter. So, you know, of course it's, it's hard to estimate what's not there, but, um, and well, let me tell you um, a little bit about what happened. So the person who ended up ultimately getting a hold of this book after he died was uh, uh, Giorgio Scolarios, who was a um, major Greek Orthodox uh, religious figure of the time and eventually became patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church. And so, and he had suspected Platon of being a pagan for a, for a long time. And so this was his proof. Mm -hmm. um, so on the one hand, he wanted to destroy the book but because Plethon was a famous philosopher, he knew there would be a lot of um, um, uh, criticism for destroying sort of the magnum opus of this, of this well-known philosopher. So what he said he did is he preserved enough of the book to prove his, his crime, basically. And he tells us that he spent four hours ripping out pages out of the book uh, and burning them. Hmm. Um, so, you know, that's a lot of burning, <laughs> I guess you would say, you know, um, but what he preserved, of course, was the stuff that, you know, showed uh, that Plethon was uh, um, had a had a practical pagan religion. And so that's in many respects, the most important stuff uh, for us um, as practicing pagans. Mm -hmm. um, 
what he burned were some, unfortunately, some quite important philosophical um, chapters about prayer, about the gods, about diamonds. Um, and um, uh, it would be very nice if we had those. But, um, you know, we can we can kind of guess what Plethon probably said, because he, he, he said, I'm not inventing anything new. I'm just basically um, building on the uh, work of my predecessors. And in fact, he gives a sort of a golden chain of 28 predecessors uh, that are the basis for his work. And um, um, the last uh, eight of them, in fact, are, you know, all well-known uh, platonic philosophers um, for, from which we have works. And so he was working from um, Plato, of course, and uh, Plutarch, and Iamblichus, and Porphyry, and uh, Proclus, probably, and um, some other sources as well. So in a sense, we kind of know what he was reading and he, what he was using as the basis of it. So uh, we can reconstruct, you know, pretty reasonably what some of those destroyed chapters said. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I have a chapter in my book that tries to reconstruct some of these um, uh, lost parts, uh, not word for word, act, of course, but but in terms of the ideas. Um, and so, you know, uh, Hladki, who uh, is one of the uh, authors who has written about Plethon, based on, you know, the number of chapters and kind of guesses about what they might have contained and the amount of time that Scolario spent burning stuff, you know, the estimate is that he probably burned about three-fifths of the book. Um, so um, we probably got about two-fifths, but they're, you know, a, fair, a very important two-fifths, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, understanding the actual practice, the ritual practice that Plethon was teaching. Okay. Yeah, you answered a few of my questions. I was going to ask what were some of his sources. And then um, I was also wondering, I, I was thinking, if someone's burning this book, they did a really bad job. Like, how can you, <laughs> how can you throw a book into a fire and then have 16 page, uh, chapters survive? But that, that makes more sense. Also, it, it's from what I understand, it wasn't all spiritual and religious. There were a lot of kind of social engineering things that Plathon was, was uh, trying to reconstruct as well. Yes, um, that's true. And in some respects, that is maybe not as unusual as you might think. Mm -hmm. uh, really, he was working in the tradition of the ancient philosophers, who in many cases were also law lawgivers, nomothetai. Um, and, uh, you know, if you look at, for instance, the stories about Pythagoras, you know, he organized communities and, mm -hmm. he, and, he, and, he, and he lectured uh, uh, Greeks, especially in Italy, about how they should organize their societies. So many of the ancient philosophers, Parmenides is another one. Right, right. Uh, you know, Plato went to the, the tyrant of Syracuse to try and get him to organize a state. So this is a long tradition, especially in the Platonic tradition, of uh, philosophers being lawgivers, you know. And why not? You know, they're in touch with the gods. Uh, they presumably, as, as philosophers, understand um, social structures and human psychology and, and knowledge and philosophy, ancient philosophy is about how to live. And that's also about how to live in society. And so uh, Plethon was really writing in the tradition of Plato's Republic and Plato's laws. 
mm-hmm. and probably he called his book the Book of Laws uh, in direct emulation of Plato's laws, uh, nomoi in in, in uh, both cases. So, um, so for for a philosopher to be presenting a religion and also a social system was was not really atypical. So. Um, um, also, I mean, it was just the, the particular cultural context of, 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 of Plethon as well. Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Turks uh, two years after Plethon died. And um, so the uh, Byzantine Empire was under constant threat from mm-hmm. um, uh, the Ottomans. Um, Greece, you know, had been uh, under uh, Frankish rule and um so I, he saw that the that Hellenic culture, I think, was was really under threat. And in fact, some of his other works are, and this was really his his job too, was as an advisor to the to the rulers. Um, you know, he gave advice on all sorts of things about how best to uh, sort of uh, um, protect the state. Um, and so he was very much a student of history uh, and oracles, even. And he would uh, look back at those and try and and. Um, give uh, what we would call political or even military uh, advice. Uh, He talked about how to fortify uh, the Peloponnese, for example. Um, So, um, you know, he took his role as a sort of philosopher advisor uh, or philosophical advisor to the state uh, very seriously, I think. And so as part of that, he did lay down in his book of laws uh, laws, literal laws about, you know, inheritance and marriage and punishment of various offenses and so forth. S- some of that survives and uh, uh, some of it is a little bit hair raising um, because it's medieval. You know, he was he I can't say in terms of his social consciousness, he was much beyond um, um, medieval thinking. Mm-hmm. Um but he, uh, you know, he tried to give philosophical arguments for how to organize the state, I guess I would say. And, um, you know, I think because, you know, in some sense, Scolarios probably didn't disagree so much with that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's some of the stuff he burned, you know, uh, but some of it does survive. And um, it's um, it's I included, of course, because it's part of what survives. But but it's not really essential in any way or even, um, I think, very closely connected with the with the religion, which is, I think, the most interesting part of what Plethon has done. Sure. Mechanically, too, really. Right. And it's, it's really ironic and funny that in the same way that kind of the church fathers, in attempts to wipe out like the Gnostic thought, um, they actually preserved it in their yeah. writings. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they they would probably be horrified if they knew. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Along those same lines of what you were talking about as far as kind of state involvement, um, can you maybe speak briefly about his role in the Council of Florence? Because that's pretty interesting, too. Yes. So um, I think the general agreement now is that he didn't have a big role. Mm. He went along with the Greek delegation. So I, in, in case uh, your listeners don't, don't know, the Council of Florence was convened to try and reunite the Western and Eastern branches of the uh, Christian church, basically the, the Roman Catholic 
and the Greek Orthodox uh, branches, um, which of course are still separated. But they were, you know, there were a number of what to an outsider looks like kind of ridiculous doctrinal uh, differences between the two branches of the church. Uh, and um, anyway, they, they, they so they would convene this grand council to, um, to try and um, um, reunite the branches. So Plethon, as a philosopher, as a lay philosopher, went along with the Greek delegation. Uh, he was um, living in uh, Mistras in the Peloponnese um, at this time, uh, where he spent the last part of his life. And he was quite old by this time. Um, so that was in 1438. And so he was probably in his 80s. We don't know exactly when he was born, but he's probably in his 80s. Um, so he sailed to um, uh, Ferrara, I believe, uh, first in, in uh, 1438. Uh, and the um, uh, Roman delegation uh, um, came, came up from Rome. And um, they moved the uh, council to um, uh, Florence in 1439 for not quite clear reasons. Par partly it was, seems to have been the plague. But um, so we had all of these church officials from the eastern and western branches meeting to try and decide if they could reach some sort of unification. I mean, part of this, again, was uh, had to do with the politics that the, that the um, uh, eastern uh, Byzantine uh, half of the Roman Empire was being assaulted by the Ottoman Turks, and they needed support from, um, you know, various uh, cities more to the west, Italian cities and, and others. And um, so they wanted to get, you know, there was some some negotiating. Well, if, you know, you you accept these things, then we'll send you some some ships to try and, and uh, protect Constantinople. And so... Um, most people think he really didn't care <laughs> because he was a mm. pagan. He was his sympathies were more with the Greeks, and so he didn't like, you know, some of the Roman ideas uh, being um, sort of imported into the into the Greek um, church. And uh, he thought, as a philosopher, Plato was much superior to Aristotle. Uh, and in the Greek, Plato tended to be preferred as a sort of a pagan predecessor to the to the christian religion whereas in the west they were more happy with aristotle because he didn't challenge uh the um uh, roman catholic doctrine so much and so that was another reason he didn't like the um, uh, western christian church and so um he went to florence uh and um gave some lectures and he, uh, in particular, uh, a very uh, important lecture of his survives, or uh, sort of a monograph called On the Differences of uh, Plato from Aristotle, and um, where he basically lays out what he thinks Aristotle got wrong, and also, by implication, what the uh, Western philosophers got wrong about Plato, and uh, because they were following Aristotle. And I, I should say that very few works of Plato were known in the West at this time. Um, I, I'm just trying to remember what, I know that Timaeus was one, um, but I think there were only like two of Plato's dialogues that had been translated into Latin and were generally known. And so uh, people just had a, a very sort of indirect knowledge. People in the West, Latin speakers mm -hmm. in the West, had a very indirect knowledge of, uh, of Plato. 
so anyway, uh, the the sort of the consensus of scholars seems to be he went along. He really didn't care too much about the uh, the Council of Unification, um, and um, gave these lectures on um, the on the superiority really of Plato over over Aristotle. And so the story goes that Cosimo de Medici, who was uh, heard some of these lectures, and uh, was very excited by by them and um, vowed that he would found a platonic academy. And um, approximately 30 years later, he did. He founded the platonic academy in Florence uh, and put Marsilio Ficino in charge of it. And um, because by then Constantinople had fallen and many uh, scholars had uh, fled Byzantium bringing uh, Greek manuscripts with them, including the works of Plato. And also, of course, the, the Corpus Hermeticum and um, many of the uh, Neoplatonists. So they brought all of these manuscripts with them, but they were all written in Greek, <laughs> which yeah. not so many people could read in the West. And so uh, one of the things Cosmo de Medici did is he said to Marsilio Ficino, you start translating uh, this Greek, this, uh, Greek stuff. And he started him, uh, according to the story, I uh, started him working on Plato, but then when he um, uh, found out about the Corpus Hermeticum, he said, well, this, this is even more important. So you do the Corpus Hermeticum first, uh, which he did. Um, and so, of course, Ficino translated many of these works into, into Latin for the first time and made them much more available in the West. Um, and, you know, arguably, I think, you know, uh, you know, you can quibble about effects, but arguably this was an important part of essentially seeding uh, the Italian Renaissance because there was this sure, sudden sure. fusion into Italy and into the West in general of especially platonic ideas that so transformed art and music and, and just thinking in general. Um, um, and of course, sort of the whole esoteric tradition too, that, you know, um, came out of uh, the Florentine Renaissance. So, you know, I, I credit Plethon with this because in a sense it was Plethon that, that inspired uh, Cosmo de' Medici to found the Florentine Academy. And, you know, we know that Ficino translated um, some of Plethon's works too, not the Book of Laws as it turns out, but, but some of his other works on the Chaldean oracles and, and some other things. Uh, indirectly, I think a very important figure in terms of sort of the Western spiritual tradition. Nice, nice, and yeah, I know, I know people are are familiar with Ficino and Medici, but may not really make that connection with Plethon. Um, so I think that's definitely valuable to to kind of get that out there for sure. Um, Janice, I know you had some questions. I don't want to hog the mic. Are you there? So I wanted to touch on a couple of things here. I, I think one of the important things about the book you published is its practicality. Um, you know, often these subjects, while intriguing, whether we're talking about Plethon or we're talking about uh, Renaissance uh, Neoplatonists uh, or even Iamblichus, for that matter, a lot of the material in print is theoretical or philosophical and not practical. And I think in today's age, especially um, especially with the sort of reaction that ended up being uh, the case towards 
what neo-paganism looked like in the 60s through the 80s or 90s, say, you know, people have a more, a deeper desire for a more authentic reconstructionist approach to things or, or even just a more authentic approach to the resurrection of ancient religion outside of the sort of um, post-1960s paradigm of quote-unquote neo- popular neo-paganism, which I think owes more to the hippie subculture than to actual source materials. And we're seeing a lot of that now. You know, the, there's different groups. Um, you know, there's Hellenic groups, there's Roman groups. But I think that what you're doing with this book is important because it opens up that door to people who are seeking something more aligned with the ancient traditions um, and that can inform their practice in a way that is authentic. Now, I guess where I'm going with all of that is the core of the core of the sort of religio spiritual aspect of this would be theurgy. And I was wondering if you could, in your own words, from your own perspective, uh, sort of articulate for our listeners what theurgy is. Yes. So theurgy, of course, etymologically is work with the gods in some sense, as opposed to theology, which is talk about the gods. And so my definition of theurgy is 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 techniques for interacting directly with deities in the broad sense. Um, so that would include the higher gods uh, um, and also uh, diamonds. Um, um, so more spatially and temporally embodied deities. Um, and so um, these are practices, I would say, so that's, I, I guess that's what I would say theurgy is. And why do you do this? Well, because uh, for one thing to learn about the gods, but also then for more uh, personal types of, of, of uh, advice or interactions, uh, the gods are uh, involved in our lives all of the time. And to make that a smoother interaction, I would say, it helps to to talk to them, in effect, um, or at least to communicate with them in some way. So theurgy, I would say, is a is a is a very much of a practical tool for people to interact with deities in a very direct way. Um, it's a skill. Uh, it's not too hard to do, but it needs to be done critically, I think, and with discernment. And uh, that's part of the training, I think, really, in terms of theurgy is to is to understand how to how to do it well. And, um, you know, we do have some some uh, very valuable works. Iamblichus is uh, De Mysteries, as it's as it's normally known, um, is a theoretical, just basically uh, uh, monograph on basically how theurgy works. But um, um um, as Dominic mentioned, it it's, doesn't give us so much uh, actual ritual, so to speak, how to how to actually do things. Um, we do have some good insights from the Greek magical papyri, which are you know more or less uh, contemporaneous, uh, come from a similar Greco-Egyptian kind of background, and although they're not, some of them are theurgical, I would say. Um, but others are, of course, just uh, sort of practical magic. And uh, but nevertheless, the techniques often we can figure out, we can see what how people were doing, what the technology was. Uh, so that's, you know, I, I, that's my definition of, of theurgy. And, and I do think that theurgy is really at the core of any genuine religion. 
I mean, this is the way people get the the insights, the inspiration in a literal sense, being inspired by a deity um, to found a religion or to transform or reform or a religion in any way. And um, I think we see that in all of the uh, uh, the religions. But uh, it's, um, you know, woefully neglected in, in most uh, mainstream religions. And I think, you know, uh, where we do have a lot of documentation about theurgy uh, is in neo, the Neoplatonic tradition, because especially the, the Neoplatonists, and the, well, all of the Neoplatonists really, were fighting a battle against uh, Christianity. Um, and uh, so they were, in a sense, needed to revitalize the pagan religion. And so they were sort of, um, I think, more actively working theurgy, theurgic practices, uh, you know, in the um, third, fourth, fifth, on through the sixth centuries um, uh, to revitalize the um, pagan religion. And that's why we find, you know, in sort of the, that late paganism, sort of the... Um, the fullest development of the ancient pagan religions. But theurgy goes back, you know, uh, theurgy goes back into the shamanic traditions, you know, probably in the Greek world uh, to the seventh century uh, BCE, if not before that. Um, but, and I think, you know, there's good evidence that theurgic practices were um, practiced all along through Greek uh, religion, but, you know, it was um, it was not called that. The, the, the term theurgy is late. Um, and, um, you know, I probably was called just divination, Monte K, uh, earlier in, uh, in the Greek religious tradition. So well, it includes, does, go ahead. Go ahead yeah. I was going to say, well, there does seem to be a, um, manifestation of what you're talking about in the shamanic sense and like the Hyperborean Apollonian, mm -hmm. um, current of theurgy that, you know, speaks about a and things like that. Would you say that's right? Yes, exactly. That's right. And so those those stories, you know, that we've got about um, uh, Pythagoras and actually about many of the uh, many of the um, uh, pre-Socratics, you know, once you're familiar with theurgy and you, you read those things, you say, oh, OK, that's what they were doing. <laughs> that makes sense out of this story, you know, flying on a golden arrow, um, you know, um, as as Avaris did. Uh, Parmenides, you know, uh, journeying to the underworld to uh, have a conversation, a lesson really with Persephone. These are theurgical operations. And when you read them with a background in theurgy, it just, um, you know, it, it seems so familiar. You know, you can just really understand what they're doing. And of course, this is why, you know, so much you know, previous work on, on the pre-Socratics, especially, um, you know, kind of misses the point because they were very rationalist philosophers reading these texts, trying to read them like modern philosophy texts. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, of course, most of them or many of them are written in verse, they're poetic. Um, they couldn't believe them to be literally true. Uh, and so they just kind of were not able to interpret them very well. Uh, but I think, you know, Parmenides, certainly Heraclitus, the whole Pythagorean tradition, um, a lot of the stuff in Plato, really, um, these, uh, um, you know, can be 
understood better from a theurgical perspective. You know, where is this stuff coming from? Well, they tell you it's coming from the gods, but they mean that literally, you know, that they're going on a, uh, if you like, a shamanic journey to interact with these beings. And um, they're getting inspired then with, with what they later write down. And I now, think, John, um, I do have a question for you then, because I came, I became a, familiar with your work probably like 20 years ago or something through your website, Biblioteca Arcana. Mm-hmm. And I was floored because for the first time I, I felt like I saw someone in our current time who seemed to understand theurgy from the inside and who had seemed to have, based upon what I saw on the material you have on there, seemed to have had some direct theophanic experiences that motivated them to go on this path. And um, so I guess my question for you, as somebody who not only has been a scholar for, for decades of this, but a practitioner, is what what is the ultimate purpose of theurgy? Well, it, it sounds kind of trite perhaps, but, but I would say it's to live better, you know, and um, if, if you believe there are gods and if you believe they have some effect in our world, it's easier (laughs) to live better. If you have some interaction with them, if you know what they have in mind for you or for the world at large, um, um, you don't have to just accept that. I mean, part of what I think is a very important in the theurgic tradition is um, uh, to, it's a two-way interaction. You know, you, you may argue with the gods. You may say, I don't, you know, okay, that's what you've had in mind, but I don't like that. I don't think that's, that's right. And um, you know, what else, how else can we, how can we work this out? How can we negotiate some way forward that, that satisfies what the God wants to happen and um, what we want to happen. And so um, I think that's, you know, in, in a sort of a superficial sense, that helps you to live better. I, you know, people will, will say, you know, um, uh, the God hit me over the head with a, with a, a two by four or something, because, you know, sent me so many signals about what they, what was supposed to, what I was supposed to be doing. And I wasn't listening. And finally, you know, they had to do some, send me a sign that I couldn't ignore. And, um, so it's much easier if you don't have to be hit with the two by four. And uh, also if you can maybe negotiate um, how things are going to go as well. So um, I think it is in fact a valuable life skill. And um, I think that this, you know, goes back to the idea that philosophy is a way of life and it's to help you to live better. And different philosophers had different ways, different um, um, ideas about how to do that. Epicureans and the Stoics and the, the Platonists, for example, had quite different ideas. Um, but the important thing about the Platonic path, um, and this is sort of the Apollonian path as well, is that um, that the gods are an important part of that. And so that any sort of way of interacting with the gods and communicating with the gods is um, can help that process along, whether it's divination uh, in some sort of um, you know, a mechanical way, uh, casting knuckle bones or whatever, or whether it's uh, a theurgic ascent to union with the gods, um, 
uh, in a more profound way, these things can all help you to live better. Because among other things, you understand the world better and you understand your place in the world better. So I think that's why these practices are important um, and why the ancient philosophers taught them and why it was really a central part of their religious practice uh, in many of these traditions. Uh, I mean, Neoplatonists, uh, Orphics, uh, the Gnostics uh, as well. Um, and, you know, in, in, in some uh, Muslim and Christian and, and Jewish uh, tr uh, traditions as well. Uh, and in outside the Western world, you know, I find a lot of parallels between uh, Neoplatonic uh, theurgy and practices in Tibetan Buddhism. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So, you know, um, um, I think, you know, the basic technology, if you will, or the science underneath the techniques is the same, you know, worldwide because we're all people. And um, so it gets packaged in different cultural ways, but, but the basic ideas are the same. Okay. And can you maybe, you touched on it a little bit with the Greek magical papyri, but um, a lot of times there seems like there's this stark um, contrast between thaumaturgy and theurgy. Yeah. And you see figures like, I mean, I know we're talking about Plethon, but um, even with Jesus, I mean, obviously you can say he was practicing theurgy, but you can also say he was practicing miracles, thaumaturgies. Um, mm -hmm. And you see that with Proclus, Iamblichus, uh, a lot of the Neoplatonists. Um, and so from your perspective, the dynamic between thaumaturgy and theurgy, how do you see it? Well, I think, you know, a this is like one of those distinctions that scholars like to make partly because they're embarrassed by magic. Mm -hmm. And um, so um, they want to somehow draw a line between magic and quote unquote leg legitimate religion <clears throat> or legitimate spiritual practices. And of course the, the answer is there is no real um, hard line between the two. I think, you know, that, that the outcome of a operation, let me say, just say uh, an operation of this sort that you're seeking can be, are you there? I seem to have lost everybody. I'm here. Yeah. I don't okay. know what's going on with uh, Janice. He's in and out. I, th I think Zoom crashed on him, but continue. Sorry. Okay, good. Uh, I, uh, so, yeah, I think that, you know, that your goals can be, more materialistic or more concrete or more personal and individual, or they can be, you know, higher in the sense that you're, they're more geared towards your spiritual development or geared towards uh, the good of the community or the world as a whole. Um, so we've got a whole range of possible goals, which, you know, we might consider more selfish or more enlightened perhaps, but it's a continuum, I think, you know, it's, it's strictly speaking a continuum and um, you know, and I, we, you know, know that certainly part of ancient practice was calling on the gods to do things that we would consider bad, you know, uh, coercing somebody to have sex with you or to, you know, have an accident in a chariot race or to get sick and die, you know, people prayed to the gods for these things. And, you know, people still pray to, to uh, Yahweh and, and um, you know, the, uh, the monotheistic gods as well for these things uh, today as well. Mm -hmm. So um, 
um, I think, you know, it, it really is a continuum. Now, I do think that, you know, where there is, you know, some worthwhile distinction to be made is that I think in many of the ancient philosophies, certainly in Platonism, um, also really even in Stoicism as well, um, is that, um, and in Gnosticism, I think I would, I would also agree, is that there's a rec is that when you become, I think, I'll, I'll say, you know, philosophically enlightened, you know, which is kind of a perhaps an overblown way of expressing, but but let me let me just say, you know, philosophically, uh, um, you've learned some of the lessons of philosophy, then you do see that these very personal goals are in a context of the wider good, the larger mm-hmm. good. And so in that sense, what you might be doing these operations for tends to shift from, you know, I want some money, or I need some money, to how can I make this a better world where maybe I also have some more money, but, you know, the, the real problem is to make it a world that works better for everybody. And so I think in the process of what I'll, I'll call spiritual or philosophical enlightenment, there tends to be a shift from more personal goals which we might think of more as thaumaturgy to uh, more spiritual goals that we might think of more as, as theurgy. But um, in terms of the, you know, the, the technique, there's really no difference. And I think it is a continuum, you know, and um, you know, I think, you know, and if with a certain level of philosophical enlightenment, there's certainly nothing wrong in trying to make things better for yourself personally, whether it's, more money or better health or whatever it might be. Um, I don't see um, that in that a, that a theurgist would not, you know, uh, interact with the gods for that, you know, like, you know, talking to the gods and saying, well, you know, why is it, you know, I never have any money, for example, or why is my, why do I have these health problems and, and what can I do about them and, and getting some advice from the, from the deities about that. I, and, and maybe working with them, you know, uh, would be um, a way of, of solving some of those problems. Well, let uh, me ask you, let me ask you something in relation to that. You know, you're speaking about asking the deities, um, you know, getting their perspective. So, you know, there's a big problem, I think, in um, especially the Western, especially in American culture, because of the inheritance of evangelical Christianity protestantism and the idea of a and and this is not in any way a uh, uh, criticism of jesus because i have no criticisms of him but um you know the idea of this personal jesus that you hear talking to you in your head and we see this imported into american neo-paganism where people uh, have these gross and kind of embarrassing misunderstandings where they think that they had contact with the deity when in reality they were simply interacting with their own discursive intellect or active imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an, epi- an epiphany of the deity is an unmistakable manifestation. And yet it takes effort and work and it doesn't seem to happen to everyone. So when you're saying, you know, asking them for their perspective or asking them to communicate with you, this is through a, um, this is through a ritual format or through divination or through dreams. I mean, how would you say that the gods communicate their will for you uh, to you when you ask for this kind of guidance? 
Well, um, really all of those, uh, and, and those were all traditional ways of communicating with um, uh, the gods as well. So uh, dreams occasionally, um, uh, divination, um, I, I do um, a variety of different systems, and uh, sort of direct theurgical rituals based on Neoplatonism. Um, so I think that part of the problem that you, and I, and I think it's a very important and serious problem that you've pointed to, um, part of the problem is for a monotheist, if somebody talks to them, <laughs> so to speak, in their head, um, because they've only got one God, really, it has to be either that God or it has to be um, a demon of some sort you know, some, some nefarious figure. Um, and so they don't really have a, a mindset for dealing with the huge multiplicity of figures that may be communicating with you. And um, I think, you know, in a polytheistic context, people understand, or at least people that have some, some experience in theurgy understand that um, when you invoke a deity, uh, that deity may not arrive. Um, um, some other deity may arrive. Um, some lesser being, a diamond, um, may arrive. Um, or some component of your subconscious may arise. And um, so um, you, in a sense, cannot, cannot take any of these interactions at face value uh, as gospel, so to speak. Um, so you've always got a critical attitude about, okay, I'm talking to some independent personality. It's independent of my discursive reason and my conscious, uh, my conscious thinking. Um, it's some other being that has um, some things to, to talk to me about. And, um, you know, you, so um, you have to take that, that into account. And you know to be critical, I think. So you know this is. Um, uh, I think you're also alluding to you know what what we, we sometimes call uh, UPG, unverified personal gnosis. Um, you know, okay, I had this grand epiphany of of whoever uh, came to me and told me uh, just how things are. Well, okay, fine. You know, uh, but we have to understand some being came to you some being interacted with your um, subtle body, perhaps, uh, would be Plethon's uh, version of, of how this works, uh, interacted with your subtle body, and this was filtered through your imagination. You had these, these experiences with this being. Um, so there's a lot of potential for contamination there. Uh, you don't really know who you're communicating with anyway. Uh, this is why Iamblichus gives a lot of sort of guidelines about how do you know what kind of being you're communicating with. Um, so, you know, you have to um, seek verification, and that can be verification from the God or whoever it was you were, you were communicating with, or it could be verification from other people that are doing theurgic rituals, or it could be verification from, from um, material reality. Um, and so I think, you know, that, that um, th uh, um, one thing about theurgical training is to make you very skeptical of these interactions. Uh, they're important, but it's a potentially very noisy channel that they're coming through. Uh, and a noisy channel from a, from a not very clear 
clearly identified source. And so you have to kind of take them from that perspective. And this is part of the interaction is to say, oh, you know, wait a minute, why should I believe this? You know, what you're telling me, you know, or I don't believe what you're telling me, you know, um, and, um, and, and to try and go from there. And I think that that's a part of what's, what's missing from a lot of the evangelical um, uh, types of communities is um, they, they do just think they can, they can kneel down and pray and whatever comes into their head that's the gospel, quote unquote, gospel truth, and they can go with that. And I think um, in traditions that have a established theurgical tradition, uh, whatever it may be called, um, that there's a lot of preliminary training to uh, uh, first of all to 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 get you to give you that that level of discernment. Um, and, um, you know, and again, just having a, knowing you're in a polytheistic context where there's lots of beings that might be communicating with you at all sorts of levels in, in sort of the, the hierarchy, if you like, of, of divine beings um, uh, gives you a, a certain degree of skepticism right there. So while I think that, that these communications are always important and relevant for you as an individual and should be taken seriously, Nevertheless, they should be treated critically and, again, with discernment, to use that, 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 that old word, and not assumed to have really any implications for other people unless there is some sort of verification. You know, if, if, if a lot of divinations and, and theurgical operations from, are independently coming up with the same thing, well, then you've got you know, you've got a better basis and you can sort of filter out the personal stuff. And, um, um, you know, so maybe Apollo talks to me, well, some other, you know, pagan who doesn't worship that pantheon, they're going to get, they're going to get a communication from somebody else. Um, so that's going to be one difference right there. But um, the way it comes also could be quite different. So I, you know, it, it's something I worry about because, you know, I hear that, you mm-hmm. know, um, uh, evangelicals, especially, or there's there's prophets uh, popping up all over the place with all sorts of of uh, prophecies, many of which seem to be just you know their own wishful thinking. But um, but that's a problem. You know, it's a problem for anyone that claims uh, communication with with the gods. Right, and that's probably nothing new either. Um, from no, no the perspective of Plethon and and of course your own perspective, you, you talked about prerequisites to kind of being able to filter out all the noise. Um, does, does Platon say anything specifically in those 16 chapters that we have on how to kind of build that spiritual vision? Well, so yeah, he, he has in a sense quite a lot to say, but in another sense, not so much. So I should say that in fact, um, Platon writes nothing about theurgy, as near as I can tell. In his commentary on the Chaldean oracles, he seems to allude to theurgy in a few places. But the Book of Laws, at least the surviving parts, uh, has nothing that I would call theurgy. He does list Iamblichus and also Porphyry uh, as um, in his golden chain. So, uh, and and he obviously had read them very closely. but um, neither from the 
chapter headings or from the surviving text does he seem to say anything about theurgy. So what does that mean? Um, I, I think it means a couple things. Um, you know, we really don't know if he practiced any sort of theurgy himself. He claims that his, you know, uh, in, he doesn't claim any sort of divine inspiration. And in fact, he was accused of that, you know, that some Scalarius and some of his other critics said, oh, he changed his name to Plethon because he's trying to make us think he's Plato reincarnated. Well, no, he's not. He's saying this uh, religion, it's all uh, rationally based on philosophy. Um, it's, you know, based on the philosophy of my predecessors, all of whom he lists. And he's, he even says in one place, you know, um, anybody starting from these premises would really kind of reach the same uh, uh, theology, at least, that he reaches. Obviously, the rituals might not be um, the same because they're somewhat arbitrary. Um, so, um, so his is a very much of a rational religion. And um, I do have a chapter on theurgy because I think it's important in the book. But um, I try and make very clear that it's, you know, it's based on Iamblichus and, and some of Plethon's sources. And we really have no reason to believe that, that he um, was practicing theurgy. Uh, but on the other hand, in the grand scheme of things that could get you uh, tortured and executed, theurgy was right up at the top of the list. So um, he would have kept that very, very secret uh, had he been practicing it. So, um, you know, I think, um, I'm, I'm not sure if I've answered your question or not, but, but um, in some ways it's a not very non-theurgical uh, Hellenic religion that he presents. Mm -hmm. um, he's got rituals, you know, he's got rituals for invoking the gods and they do kind of follow Neoplatonic uh, theurgical ideas, but I wouldn't call them theurgic practices. They're not spells uh, or, or specific sorts of rituals like that. They're, you know, more like traditional religious rituals, you know. They... So, so let me ask you this. So as you may or may not know, our podcast is dedicated to Hermes. And uh, so in the context of, you know, what you're describing, what would what would a, a, a right in the in in the life of somebody who's who's practicing this way? What would what would just a right to invoke Hermes and uh, seek his bla uh, blessing look like in this context? So it would what um, all his rituals have pretty much the same format, um, and, I, and I can describe a little bit about you know, later about, um, you know, how these fit into the whole calendar year and everything. But there's an, an initial invocation, a triple adoration, as it's called, of Zeus as the highest god, uh, and then of the uh, Olympian gods, and then of the, all of the other uh, gods. Uh, so there are, there are sort of three salutations uh, that take place uh, to the gods in general. Uh, then typically there would be a um, uh, a long invocation, um, and uh, most of his invocations are to groups of gods. But the basic principles of constructing the invocations are are um, basically follow Neoplatonic principles. So that would be um, 
calling on the god by various names that the god is known by, names and epithets. Uh, so for, for Hermes, for example, um, then uh, citing some uh, functions of that deity within um, the religion. So now in traditional Greek prayer, that would often cite, for instance, uh, myths that, um, for example, where Hermes had, had helped some person in the past, um, either individually or, or mythologically, you know, and um, so given guidance, for example, or, or helped somebody understand something. Um, and um, but also it could in, include uh, where reminding the God where they have helped you in the past, you as a person. And um, so now in Plethon, uh case, though, uh, the gods have somewhat different functions than they do in traditional mythology. And so um, uh, Hermes in particular is the god that oversees the diamonds. So um, he would be invoked as the, uh, the, the, the leader uh, and the creator of the souls of diamonds. And uh, that would probably, um, you would mention those functions of Hermes. Then you might uh, uh, ask for a request um, of, the, of the deity. So now in the case of Hermes, again, because in Plethon's system, his primary function is as the, um, the creator of the souls of the diamonds, um, you might ask him for some aid if you're dealing with some particular diamonds uh, and um, asking for some aid in, in that regard, whether it's making contact with a particular diamond or um, uh, helping you negotiate with a particular diamond or, 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 or whatever it might be. Now, now Plethon is, is very insistent in his religious system that all of the diamonds are beneficial. There's no such things as evil diamonds in his system. Um, but that doesn't mean they're doing what you want. Um, and so um, um, in that sense, you might uh, negotiate with Hermes to basically say, hey, get, get your guys in, in, in order here and help me out. And, um, you know, and then some, some thanks, you know, thanks for, um, and promises, vows, again, uh, as um, in traditional, his, his, his prayers are in some sense quite traditional, but it's a citation. What connects you with the deity is offerings connected with that deity. But in Plethon's cases, it's not sacrificing an animal or even necessarily burning incense or, or something like that. It's verbal connections with the deity. So citing the deity's functions, uh, theological functions, and um, again, uh, ways that they've, they've uh, helped in the past. So it's a verbal connection with that particular deity. Again, kind of consistent with, with um, Plethon's overall kind of rationalistic approach to, to religion. Oh, and a hymn. I, I forgot to mention a hymn. Then, you know, a hymn, you would sing a hymn that might be especially devoted to that to that god and there is a, you know there for each of the olympian deities there's a there's a hymn devoted to that deity so say you know and it seems to follow the general earlier indo-european form of prayer then because you have the first you're starting with the appellations like Hermes Unios, Hermes Charodotes, Hermes Argifantes, Hermes Chrysorapis of you know and just keep going with that um, Aramis Mayados Wios, and then you'd move into Hear Me Aramis, uh, Cattle Rustler, Bringer of Dreams, Watcher by Night, Silver, Silver Tongue, Glory of Heaven, Prince of Arcadia, Maya's Son, Aid of Heroes such as 
uh, Odysseus, who you whose minister is Heracles, hear my voice, O blessed, O blessed and righteous uh, one. And then you'd move into uh, you who conduct the souls back and forth and who uh, communicate messages from Olympus and who delight in the Agora and the gymnasium. Hear my voice, O Lord. And then you might say the Orphic prayer to Aramis. And then you might ask, O Lord, you know, please send forth a daimon to assist me with this matter or, um, you know, or please aid me in such and such a way. And then you would give thanks. And then you would say, oh, Lord, if you if you help me with this matter, I will publicly thank you or make a donation to a uh, school or something like that. Yeah, perfect. Um, now, here's one important difference, though. Pletheon is following the old platonic idea that the poets told lies about the gods. So you know that, uh, you know, the, the Neoplatonists, especially uh, many philosophers were in the business of providing uh, metaphorical interpretations of the traditional myths, you know, the castration of uh, Uranus and, and so forth. Um, um, so, um, uh, Plato had famously said, you know, in his in his in his ideal state, throw out all of the poets because they tell all these lies about the gods. And so um, Plethon really is following up on that. And he said, well, that's true. You know, and the philosophers can tell us the truth about the gods. And so his religion is based on um, what he understands the philosophers to have said about the gods. So many of those traditional myths he would reject as basically uh, misleading and pernicious lies. So um, now he does um, cite some of them, some of the myths, and he, um, in some of his assignments of the functions to the gods, he seems to be alluding to some of these myths as well. So I'll give you a specific example um, that um, Dionysus is the god that oversees uh, self-moving things. Uh, so in, in a philosophical sense, things with souls. And um, this seems to be an allusion um, back to, you know, and again, it all comes from Plato ultimately, but you know, that the Plato statement that the thyrsus carriers are many, but the Bacchae are few, that a person whose soul has been reunited after the Titans carved it up, you know, and boiled it. Uh, the heart was rescued and Athena took the heart to Zeus and Zeus uh, um, sewed it in his thigh or whatever, and it was reborn as Dionysus. So, so it's a divine type of soul. So this is a, is a process that we all go through. This is the Orphic process, you know, of reuniting our soul and divinizing our soul. Well, he seems to be alluding to that in what he says about Dionysus, but he doesn't tell that myth and that myth is not explicitly cited, you know, in, in the hymn to Dionysus. So um, th that's the only difference is he would be very selective in what mythological, what myths he cited in his, in his, um, in his prayer, because some of the myths might be compatible with the philosophical understanding of that deity like, for example, the Orphic myths, but other myths might, he would consider, you know, just bad stories, you know, and it would be sort of insulting to the god, if you like, to really 
and wouldn't connect with the God. Because what you're trying to do is use these stories to connect with a particular deity. This is how you try and control who you're actually talking to. And if you use the wrong story, well, it's going to miss the mark. You know, it's going to be a, it's going to uh, get you nobody, or it's going to get you some some random uh, diamond or something. So that's such an important piece of advice you just gave, because I feel like what you're saying is essentially that the myths themselves are uh, are a technical method of communication that evokes the qualities of the God that you're trying to um, connect with symbolically. Would you say that's correct? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, you can interpret them metaphorically, um, and um, that metaphorical interpretation can be the connection. Uh, I've actually just written a chapter on theurgy where I use an invocation of Athena um, uh, in exactly that way. And and um, it's from Proclus, actually. Proclus, uh, in his um, uh, hymn to Athena, um, cites a number of the myths, but they're clearly given a metaphorical interpretation, which is what he's after, because he's, he's um, you know, like the contest with Poseidon over, over uh, Athens. And um, I'm just trying to remember what other ones um, he mentions. But, um, but Proclus's hymns, uh, there's seven surviving hymns, uh, are a really good example of using the myths with a metaphorical interpretation to basically uh, make the connection you want. Now, again, Plethon um, is not so willing to do that. He, he uh, is, is less willing to use the traditional myths um, because I think he thinks, he says, in fact, they're too likely to be misinterpreted by the, I forget the term he uses, but the unschooled or the uneducated. So he's really trying to come up with a religion, which is not just for a bunch of philosophers, but it's for this community that he's defining in his book of laws. So he's, um, you know, trying to come up with a popular church, if you like. And um, so he doesn't want to do things that are going to mislead people. Uh, you know, I guess, you know, crudely, you know, they don't want them going out castrating their fathers just because, oh, well, that's what Kronos did, you know, so it must be okay. <laughs> hey, John, how, how do you, how do you feel about that? Because I could see where um, taking those myths as literal could lead people into kind of a fundamental uh, worldview, fundamental path, similar to how you see, you know, not that we want to knock Christians, but how Christian fundamentalists take these literal things way too literally. Do you feel like that was kind of the direction he was going with with what you're talking about as far as the meta- metaphorical interpretations being a little bit too uh, problematic potentially for for the masses. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So no, do you I think, think that's, that's where... exactly? I mean, yeah. you know, I, I think the 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 most dangerous aspect of, of of fundamentalist religions is they take everything literally, and um, you know, stuff that was not intended to be taken literally. And I and I think he was well aware of that problem, living as he did in. Byzantium and, you know, with these uh, trying, seeing these two versions of the Christ, Christian religion, fighting it out and trying to, to uh, you know, reconcile, you know, some of these issues, which largely arise from a too literal reading of, mm-hmm. of, the, of what's interpreted as a sacred text. I mean, I think it's important to put it, point out in Platon's religion, there is no sacred text, you know, 
Um, there's neither his book of laws nor uh, any of the um, other predecessors that he cites are treated as sacred texts. It has to make sense, you know, I, I guess is, is uh, from Plato's perspective. Now, again, that's somewhat different from, from the Neoplatonists we think about, you know, uh, Gamblicus and Proclus, and, and those are, are, are um, more willing to take an, to embrace the non-rational aspects of this, I think. Uh, than Plethonus, at least in his public religion. Again, this was intended to be a religion for the masses, so to right. speak. Um, w- you know, what he may have done with on his own or, you know, with his uh, few um, close students is hard to tell. Um, right. Yeah. I don't know that Iamblichus um, on the mysteries was meant for the masses necessarily. I don't think so. Yeah, right. no, I really don't think so. And, you know, we know these, uh, well, especially by that time, you know, these uh, Neoplatonic groups were, you know, quite small and isolated and besieged. So um, there's a very select audience you're dealing with there. Well, I have a, I have another question. Um, this is a little bit more of a direct kind of simple answered one, but, you know, today in our modern age, people are in the West, especially just so overwhelmed by the egoistic, analytical, rational, discursive intellect, and the sort of inheritance from the Enlightenment and uh, Protestantism that they have trouble getting out of their head. Even people who want to explore things like we've been discussing, they tend to rationalize a lot of it, uh, even when they're practicing it. And this can be an obstacle to the direct experience of a theophany Mm -hmm. so simply put would you say the gods can they be known and experienced directly on their own terms as they are in themselves as opposed to our own mental projection or um rationalistic ideation um well i think certainly think they can be experienced or known independent of our rational ideation. Um, On the other hand, I think they will always be known or are always known, um, mediated by our physical embodiment. And now, you know, Plethon argues that we have an immortal soul with um, an ethereal vehicle, um, which which sticks with it, uh, which is kind of a semi-physical thing. And that we're then um, that soul is is periodically bound into a a mortal physical body, and um, but it's the higher part of that, you know. What in ancient Greek philosophy was is called the nous, the um, supra rational mind. I would call it. It's the mind that knows the Platonic forms directly without thinking about them, so to speak, without without analyzing them rationally. And so uh, most of the Neoplatonists, including Plethon, would say our nous can be have some direct contact with the gods. And I think, you know, in some respects, he, he believes that we can know more about the gods than, for example, um, some of the other Neoplatonists would, would acknowledge. So in that sense, he's a, he, he uh, grants a little more human power, cognitive or epistemological power, than um, Proclus or, or Iamblichus would. Um, but it's a, 
it's this higher part of the of the soul above the rational part. Uh, uh, you know, the the anoya is the sort of the discursive reason. You know, where we think things through and talk to ourselves and so forth. Uh, but the noose is is a higher faculty, and that's the part that that is really of the same nature as the gods, and therefore can have some direct contact with the gods and know it. But nevertheless, that's you know, then then we have some experience of that, and that's mediated by the rest of this whole package. You know, it's we we think about it and talk about it to ourselves even, uh, and try and understand it in conceptual terms. That's with our lower uh, uh, discursive reason, and and again, it, it's uh, uh, especially for the um, lower beings, the diamonds. Uh, Plutarch basically says that they interact with our subtle body. Their subtle body interacts with our subtle body. So it's again, it's sort of a, a mediated interaction as well. So um, we can have those direct experiences, but but because they're supra rational of their nature, they have a, a sort of ineffability. We can't really describe them in words or re, really even conceptualize them to ourselves, you know, because immediately when we try and say, oh, well, that was a what was that light or what was that sudden feeling of euphoria and union? Well, now you're putting words on it, euphoria and union and light and so forth. And so you're now, you know, dealing with it at a, with a lower level of your, of your, of your mind. Um, and it's not direct anymore. Now it's mediated by all of these words and concepts we're using to try and understand it. So yes, we can have these direct experiences, but, uh, then we have to deal with them. We have to try and, and make some sense out of it. And then we're back in our limited and fallible minds. And um, this is why philosophers talked about these stuff. You know, the Neoplatonists would go and do their theurgical rites and have their experiences, but then they had to try and figure out what it all meant. And, um, you know, if you see, for instance, Proclus's, uh, you know, his, his um, elaborate hierarchies of all of the gods, well, that's him trying to make sense out of the experiences that he had. And also, you know, to try and interpret it in terms of platonic doctrine and also the experiences that his fellow theurgists had. Um, and Iamblichus too, all of that stuff that's in the Mysteries, it's trying to make sense out of these uh, fundamentally um, ineffable sorts of experiences that, that, that they had. And um, so I think, you know, like with divination, you know, you get a dream or you get a result, an oracular response, then you have to make sense out of it. And that's a very error-prone process. And that's where you have to have a lot of humility and say, well, you know, I really don't understand what's going on here. This is my, the best sense I can make out of it. And I have to sort of provisionally go on and, um, you know, see if, see if I'm right or wrong about this, or maybe I'll never know, you know. And I think, again, that's where, you know, some people that have not had theurgical training um, can get misled because they have an experience and they think they know what it means. And, um, you know, that's they don't, you know, that's just your first guess or that's just, um, you know, projecting their own wishful thinking onto it. This is why theurgy in many traditions, and I'm thinking of Eastern traditions as well as Western traditions, is not something that people get taught right off the bat. This is, you know, after some years of rather intense practice, 
and um, education, you know, to put it all in the right context so you can you can um, deal in a healthy way with with the results of the experiences. And in that sense, it's no different from drug-induced spiritual experiences. You know, um, you can't just take a drug and expect to have a spiritually enlightening experience. There's set and setting, you know, to uh, set the uh, proper environment and also the proper training and expectations uh, to encourage an experience that then will have some spiritual uh, insight, bring some spiritual insight. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of what I was getting at earlier about the prerequisites to having an authentic experience or perceiving it as authentically as possible. And I guess these things can only really be perceived through our, you know, it's all perceived through our biases Mm -hmm. and, you know, where we are mentally at any given time. So, I mean, that's something to consider that the gods are going to be kind of dressed up in the clothes that we provide them in our mind. And, you know, someone in, in late Greco Egypt is going to see Jupiter or Zeus dressed more in that, in those clothing, literally than someone in an earlier, you know, Greek context. So uh, all things to consider for sure. Yeah. One of the Chaldean oracles says that explicitly, you know, we put on these forms for your benefit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. You know, and, and, you know, epiphanies that I've been, been involved with other people, you know, where Athena appeared, you know, in a, in one case in a, in a, being driven in a limousine, you know, <laughs> and, right. and not dressed up, you know, with a helmet and all of the, all the rest. So um, uh, yes, absolutely. These are, these are, and this is why, you know, Yamblichus says that the, 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 the higher gods appear as, you know, balls of light, or it's not clear exactly what he's saying, but, you know, in, they don't appear as, as people, you know, they don't look like people. Um, and um, in a sense, that's when the fear just doesn't need the crutch, if you like, of a easier to relate to um, appearance, but we know how to relate to people, right? So it's very reasonable for the gods to appear to us like mm-hmm. people. Um, because, you know, we can read body language and expressions and, and, and we know how they talk and so forth. Um, so I think it's a, it's a, it's a very reasonable thing, but it's, it's, it's important to keep this all in mind. And this is also, let me mention one other thing. This is why, you know, in living long lasting theurgical traditions, of course, there's a, you know, I'll, I'll say guru student relationship too, because then when, uh, somebody who's learning through theurgy or beginning with theurgy, if they have an experience, they can go to their teacher and say, well, you know, what about this? You know, and, and the teacher can help them sort through all of this and, you know, talk about, um, you know, um, how to interpret it. And that's, I think, a very important part of learning to do this. Like most skills, you know, it's best law taught experientially, and with a sort of oral tradition, uh, one-on-one. And we know that the ancient philosophical schools operated this way. You know, there were group sessions where people could talk about their dreams and, you know, different things like that. But then there was also one-on-one instruction where people could talk about their experiences or and get, you know, specific guidance on what to do uh, next. And um, I think this is what, you know, helped 
ancient theurgists steer clear from some of the traps that lie, uh, that are potentially in these sorts of, of uh, spiritual practices. Mm -hmm. So that leads me to, to one, um, maybe one final question for you on my part, at least. That is the daimon in, con in the context of this, you know, the daimon or the genius, one could say. Um, first of all, does Plethon touch on this at all in any of his work? And second of all, in your own personal understanding, um, you know, what is the role of the daimon in this kind of theurgical work? Okay, so um, Plethon has a has a hierarchical uh, system of gods. So Zeus is is the is the top god, and uh, then there's the Olympian gods, which are Platonic forms essentially. They're out outside of time and space. They're eternal in a in a completely timeless sense. Uh, then there are the celestial gods. Um, or I, I said Olympian gods. I, I, I made a mistake. I meant super celestial gods that are outside of time and space. Uh, and they're essentially platonic forms. Then there are the celestial gods, which are, I would say, symbolized by the seven visible planets. Um, of course, he was uh, lived in a pre-Copernican world, so he thought they all went around the earth. But these are, are lesser gods that are in uh, time and space, but they're essentially everlasting. They, you know, they, from his perspective, continue on forever. But they're, you know, uh, in the heavens. And then on earth, there are the uh, diamonds. He calls them sometimes just diamonds, sometimes terrestrial diamonds. And as I mentioned before, he insists that they're all good because they're emanations ultimately of Zeus, who is good. So all of the gods are good because they're all emanations of Zeus, who is good. So this is sort of standard Platonism. You know, there's a lot of nuance to talk about. Well, what is exactly mean that everything is good? But 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 I'll leave that aside. So the diamond's job is basically pretty much like in traditional Middle Platonism. Uh, they are assistants to the gods. They help carry out the gods' functions on Earth. So the super celestial gods are outside of time and space. So in effect, they need surrogates operating in time and space uh, to carry out what they do to fulfill their functions. And that's what the diamonds do. So um, now some of his detailed chapters on the diamonds were destroyed. So we don't know exactly what he said about them. But um, um, as I said, he insisted that they're that they're basically the lowest rank of diamonds above us. He says they're the lowest uh, immortal beings above humans, and um, uh, they're divine and good. So we have to look at um, his sources for for about the diamonds. And um, you know, I've uh, I have a section in my book which is basically reconstructing what he might have said about the diamonds. And it's uh, mostly from Plutarch and um, uh, Chalcidius as well. Um, and um, a few other sources, which are all things, all sources we know he used. And, um, you know, they pretty much have the same, same idea that oh, diamonds are, are good, but they, um, you know, they deal with us directly. So we have a personal diamond, the guardian diamond that Plato talks about. There's diamonds that, you know, um, help the plants grow and help animals uh, breed and, 
and uh, do their thing. And, um, you know, so the daimonion of Socrates is, is, of course, his guardian. Um, so probably a little higher rank than than, than the rest of us. Um, uh, Plotinus also had a uh, had a guardian spirit that was a, of a higher rank than the diamonds that most of us have. Um, so there's a whole classification of diamonds that, again, mostly comes from other sources, from uh, uh, Plutarch and Cocidius. And um, Porphyry also has has something to say about diamonds. Porphyry admits the uh, possibility of evil diamonds, but again, um, Plethon doesn't think there are any of those. And I mean, and he gives arguments uh, as to why there aren't any. Uh, so there's lots of them, <laughs> you know. And also, we know from um, uh, Plutarch and also Ap- Apuleius that diamonds often go by the names of the gods they serve. So this, again, is an important part of theurgy. If you call Athena, for example, and a being shows up and says, hi, I'm Athena. Well, okay, but maybe it's a diamond serving Athena uh, who is therefore calling herself Athena. Well, that's fine. That's the way it ought to be, because the diamonds are what essentially interact with things in space and time, and that's us. And so um, that's perfectly reasonable for one of Athena's diamonds to show up and say, hi, I'm Athena. It also could be some other diamond that, that, that wants to interact with you and says, hi, I'm Athena. You know, so that's, again, where that, where that um, a critical attitude and, uh, comes, becomes important. So lots of diamonds, personal diamonds, but also lots of others that are not particularly associated with us. Uh, the ancient Greeks had an, uh, an idea of uh, oikeoi daimonis. In other words, personal spirits, you might even say familiar spirits, that we all have a set of them that uh, you know, know us because they're in interaction with our subtle bodies, and so they know the contents of our mind. Um, it's very reasonable, I think, to think of them as parts of our unconscious mind, parts of our subconscious, because they go around with us. They know what's in our heads, uh, both consciously and unconsciously, and they have important interactions with us. So I think that's uh, very reasonable to interpret them, some parts of our subconscious minds. How's that? (laughs) I think that was great. No, thank you very much. We've been going for a while now. That might be a good place to, to start to kind of wrap things up. Definitely appreciate your time and and all the education you've given us. Where could uh, people find out kind of news about what you're doing and what you're up to? You do have a new book out, uh, Secret Texts of Hellenic Polytheism. Um, so, so where could people find you? Okay, so the best way to find me is I have a website, opsopaeus.com. And so that's O-P-S-O-P-A-U-S.com. And um, I have information there on my um, my latest book. You just mentioned Secret Text, Hellenic Polytheism. I have a page where I have resources for use with the book, help you figure out Plethon's calendar, the Greek text, if you want to see that, you know, and also translations of his commentaries on the Chaldean oracles and some other works by him. And also... Um, you know, news about presentations I'm giving or classes I'm teaching, any sort of stuff like that. It also has uh, information about my previous book, uh, The Oracles of Apollo, 
on practical ancient Greek divination and some resources to go with that. And um, also a link to the uh, my old Bibliotheca Arcana website, which uh, which you know, um, which has a lot of my older writings and and my Pythagorean tarot and stuff like that. So, but opsopeus.com will get you to all of that stuff. And people can email me from from there as well. Uh, I am on Facebook. I'm not a super dedicated Facebook user, so um, the website's probably the best way to get get access to the material and uh, get in touch with me. Perfect, perfect. This has been really, really great. Um, definitely appreciate you coming on. Janice, did you have anything, any final words? No, I just wanted to thank you for your time and for your excellent explication of this subject. And uh, I just want, yeah, I just wanted to thank you. And I am hopeful that your book gets the readership it deserves. I think it's an important contribution to the development of theurgic tradition in the present, which is, I think, something that can be of ultimate benefit to people's souls. Great. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and and, uh, great questions. I, I love talking about this stuff. Okay, that was John Opsopeus, a um, current exponent of the theurgic tradition in our age. I remember, God, 20 years ago or something, going online and finding his webpage, Biblioteca Arcana, and being blown away. I couldn't believe that there was somebody with this much acumen and insight regarding the art of theurgy writing on a regular basis on this obscure art. I was totally impressed by the contents of that page. Um, Tons of magical and theurgic workings abounded, uh, philosophical writings on esoteric Pythagoreanism, uh, interpretations of the Tarot. And he also did make a Pythagorean Tarot, which is pretty excellent. Um, I have it. It's out of print, unfortunately, but the book that accompanies it is also excellent, even if you don't get the deck, because it's a really formidable exposition of Pythagorean doctrine uh, interpreted through the lens of uh, Neoplatonic theurgy. He was a pleasure to have on the show. This was the latest installment of our theurgic series. We've had Gregory Shaw, Jeffrey Cooperman. We've had a, several th- people come on and discuss theurgy uh, and diamonds and um, Angela Voss was a delightful guest. And now we have another wonderful guest. These people are often so impressive to me because they've really immersed themselves in a world that doesn't really exist anymore and have excavated these approaches to contacting the transpersonal forces of the cosmos. I was really pleased with this episode and grateful for our guest and thankful for his insights. Dom? Yeah, no, I I enjoy all perspectives on theurgy. All of our guests come at it a little bit differently, but uh, so it's nice to hear all the different uh, views. And he put forth some some very interesting ideas. And his contribution, I think, is is really valuable. I mean, this this book on Python is is going to be great, and it's just a great addition to the whole kind of theurgic. Although maybe not, maybe I won't say theurgic, 
but um this whole neoplatonic kind of story this this chain from the classic neoplatonists through plethon into the renaissance and uh here we are so yeah it's, it's going to be a great book i'm really looking forward to to taking a look at it um people like this who are kind of finding these obscure forgotten texts are just um, real treasures and uh, we need to support them really. Um, and speaking of uh, Jeffrey Kupperman, um, we had him on a few episodes back and his book, a theurgist's book of hours. Um, it's kind of a calendar based um, workbook for kind of a living theurgic praxis. Um, his book is based on Plethon's calendar. So it's a, it's a nice connection there too. Well, yeah, if somebody was really interested in living this life in a sincere way, they could acquire both publications and use them together to form a living practice where they're venerating the gods. And I think that an important thing to understand is the hegemony of the imperialistic form of Christianity attempted to discredit the elevated nature of uh, pre-Christian and non-Christian religious traditions uh, and characterize it as quote-unquote pagan, which is, of course, a Roman word which indicates, you know, unlettered, ignorant country folk. And so it was inferred and accused that, you know, the quote-unquote pagans simply worshipped these um, capricious deities who were all too similar to humans. When it was totally understood that the hieratic tradition within, I hate using the word paganism, but uh, within that, within the pre-Christian uh, indigenous European uh, religions was just as refined as ele and elevated as Christianity. In fact, I mean, in really in Byzantium, Byzantium integrated the Neoplatonic and Gnostic theurgic practices into Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And there was there were elements of that in the Western form of Christianity too. But I do feel that at least now, uh, due to this, you see, you continue to see theurgic practice within Eastern Christianity, and it is even called theurgy. Um, you know, henosis, theosis, uh, these things really come from the pre-Christian tradition um, that Plathon was attempting to resurrect. But I also think we need to be careful about nourishing biases against Christianity, because it's important to understand that the imperialistic form of Christianity is only the form that became popularized um, by uh, government. There were, there were earlier heterodox forms of Christian practice that were just as vehemently targeted by the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church that had a great deal more in common with the Neoplatonists and Hermetists of antiquity than, than they had in difference. It's really interesting in the Byzantine section of the Met Museum in New York City, you can actually see an amulet from Byzantium. It was a marriage amulet uh, to protect a uh, couple and to commemorate a marriage. And on one side of it, there's the Gnostic Pantheosabraxis. So, you know, this is, if you, if you consider that this was just, it was made in gold, if you consider that this was something that was 
you know, carried on a regular basis by just a regular citizen, probably mid, upper middle or upper class citizen, you know, it challenges the narrative that this was a marginal, that these were marginal uh, beliefs and attitudes. I mean, so we have to really question history and look at it with great scrutiny. And right now, I think part of what we need to do is now that we are safe to without being targeted, reconstruct as much as possible these approaches to spirituality. And part of the reconstruction is a deconstruction of the the mindset that we've been inculcated in in the Western world for hundreds and hundreds of years, if not really a couple thousand years almost. Um, we have to learn to view magic differently. We have to learn to view religion differently and, um, you know, revisit these terms, revisit these terms on the terms of the people who used them in ways that were not um, Christian or Abrahamic. Religion isn't a bad word. Um, and to assume that people before Christianity or during Christianity who did not practice it were not religious and did not have approaches to interacting with the divine or did not interact or did not believe in a form of the divine that was that was sublime and refined is a conceit that has been taught to us. We have to unlearn these conceits. As I mentioned during the episode, the inheritance of evangelical Protestantism Evangelical Christianity, the Protestant tradition, uh, cannot be underestimated. Anybody who has visited a um, quote-unquote neo-pagan gathering in America, at least, and I hear in England, you know, if you go to Glastonbury, there's a similar, similar sort of phenomenon. You can't help but see the the inheritance of that among people who, though they have rejected Christianity on a surface level, they have not uprooted. Uh, the Protestant ethos from their minds. And you see it in neo-paganism, you see it in um, heathenism, you see it all over the place. And, and really, if we're going to embrace these approaches to the spiritual life, we have to, we have to meet the paradigm on its own terms. And sometimes that requires us to go through a process of unlearning where we go back to zero. Right, right. Okay. So, I think it's time to move on. So, what do you have for us this week for your book review, Janice? So, Janice's book review for this week is a follow-up on the book review from the prior episode. Um, Those who have listened to the episode preceding this one know that I spoke about the Book of Gold, which is an excellent psalm workbook. Um, really practical and useful. It's a translation, uh, has connections to the Sefer Shemush, to Hilim, all of that. Well, this is another one, another psalm. I figured I'd follow up with another practical psalm book. This one is published by Troy Books, and it is called The Charmer's Psalter. It's a useful little book, um, and it gives you translations of the psalms, the magical psalms, and it also has a section at the end with some verbal charms. Um, but the magical psalms, the uses for them are exorcism, blessing of the working ground to avert evil, to defend against enemies and return curses for safety, to expose slanderers, liars, and persecutors against evil spirits and people, 
against magic to dispel melancholy, against poverty and for success in business to cause love, to return evil upon enemies, and even to raise dark assistance against enemies. There's a lot more too. So it'll get, it gives you the purpose, um, and then it gives you the psalm. And sometimes it'll give you a couple of different psalms you can use or verses from certain psalms that you can use for this purpose. So it's really useful. I'll pick one out randomly here. Um, let's see. Against Evil Spirits and People, Psalms 101 and 68. These two psalms are to be together written upon parchment or paper and carried upon the person as a charm. And then sometimes it'll give you one of the holy names that you're supposed to use. For instance, in the one against persecution, you use Psalm 11 or 12, and you use the holy name Pele, which means wonderful, either held in thought or I believe if you were to make a, um, you know, a document like a letter, you would write that on the letter. But the point is, it's a very useful little workbook. It comes in hardcover and softcover. Um, it's good for people who like to use the Psalms, who feel the Psalms are effective. It's, and it's useful. It comes in a small format, so you can throw it in your pocket. About 120 pages. And at the back, they have um, a Welsh cursing charm, a Suffolk charm against thieves, a mourning charm for protection against thieves and enemies, which is herb gathering charms for illness in general, bone setting charms, you know, all kinds of things for toothache. So it's really useful. Um, and I recommend it again, you could get this in the book of gold and have a lot to work with in experimenting and practically using the Psalms and effective magical work. Great. And what's the title again? It is called the charmers Psalter. Uh, Gemma Gary is the one who composed it. It is published by Troy Books, which is usually a, that publishing house is a smorgasbord of utility. So I want to give them a shout out. And I want to just mention that this is a great little book. And um, yeah. A smorgasbord of utility. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay. Uh, where were we? Um, I think that's it for today. We appreciate everyone listening from all around the world. Please give us a rating and review where you can. Feel free to shoot us a message on any of the platforms on Facebook, whatever comment on YouTube. We love hearing from you. We're always interested. We're also open to your ideas. If you ever have a guest you'd like to hear that you think would be compatible with the theme of the show, just let us know and we'll do our best to reach out to them if it would fit with what we do. Okay. On that note, we will see you in the next episode. Bye.